Let us pray. Oh Lord, our God, we come to you thankful at the end of a full Lord's Day, opportunity to gather together and worship you and praise your name and to enjoy the means of grace. Lord, we thank you for for the small little taste of heaven that you've given to us today. And we look forward to the fruit that the Spirit is working out. And we ask that as you work it in us for our benefit and the benefit of your church, that you would do all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, we're going to be looking at verses 36 through 49 this evening. Lord willing, uh, next Sunday evening we will gather together and it will be the final concluding sermon in this sermon series as we moved our way through the gospel according to Luke. It's been, at that time, will be over 130 sermons Moving our way through well over two years, I pray that it's been a joyous time for you. I'm thankful for the many opportunities of study and wrestling and prayer with the Lord, moving through uh, this gospel. It's been a blessing and enjoyment. I pray that it would continue to bring fruit in all of our lives and that he would be glorified through these many, many sermons. At the beginning of each sermon, I've, I've repeated a summary. So we're about 130 times now for the purpose of trying to get you to remember it. And as we approach the last two sermons, uh, I think it'd be wise, instead of simply just repeating it, uh, letting you see where it came from. This wasn't Pastor John's summary, per se. This is the Holy Spirit's Summary. It is what we see, it is what Luke tells us in the beginning as we as I flip all the way to the beginning, chapter one, and read just a couple verses. Starting in verse one. And inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let's turn now again to God's word. Chapter 24, as we look to the end, almost, of this letter. Starting in verse 36, this is God's perfect and errant word. Follow along as I read. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved 
for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. If you were to come up with a, a top five, maybe we'll expand it out, a top ten things, moments, situations that, that terrify you, and, and I'll we'll broaden it out, perhaps they no longer terrify you, no longer you're fearful, maybe just as a child it was something that, that scared you, perhaps maybe the children's list maybe would look similar to the adults, perhaps different, you know. Maybe some of the children wouldn't have some of the things that adults see as uh, perhaps terrifying. But there is one I bet's on everybody's list. Uh, at least when you were a child, it was on your list. Maybe not top five, but, but hopefully top ten. Well, I guess hopefully it would be a bad way to say it. Maybe top ten. And that is a, an evening storm. I mean, a real storm. Like you wake up in the middle of the night in your bed and the house is shaking from the thunder. And you, and you can feel the wind crashing on the sides and the lightning and, and it's loud and perhaps there's even hail coming down on, on the roof and in the midst of that, it, it can be pretty terrifying. It can be a moment that is, that is fearful, scary. Now, for the adults, think back to what it was like to be a child in that situation. For the children, perhaps think about the last storm you were in. Now, in the midst of that storm, in the midst of that fearful moment, now think of a family member, perhaps your father, your mother, a grandparent, an uncle, an aunt, coming in, into the room, sitting next to the bed, praying with you, talking, calming you. What a great comfort that would bring in the midst of that fearfulness that is all around you. As we come to this passage, we've been, we've been moving our way through, and, and we begin in a moment here when the, the disciples are in the midst of a storm. Now, it's different than a, than a natural weather storm, but they're in the midst of quite a storm. It's perhaps, I think, maybe the, the most violent of storms that they've been in yet. The disciples here, at the beginning of this passage, they're, they're terrified. They're full of shame for the way that they've acted towards their Savior in the last 48 hours. And they're heartbroken. Perhaps even despairing. And as we come to our passage and we see this context and we understand what's happening. I hope we're encouraged. 
courage that the risen Christ appeared to his disciples to give them peace and to charge them with a mission. We're going to look at two things this evening together. The risen Christ appeared to his disciples to give them peace, and the risen Christ appeared to his disciples to give them a mission. So we think of peace. We open with Jesus' disciples talking of the news. We have just closed out where we were in our last sermon together as the two disciples had had rushed back to Jerusalem that they might deliver the news that they were just with the risen Christ. And they come and they tell all these things of how it had happened. And they are in the midst, the disciples, of taking this news in. They're talking about it. The reality of of what they're hearing, that the Christ is appearing. And it is in that moment that Christ appears to them. Ryle explains the scene this way. He says, "We, we read that he suddenly stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be unto you. This was a wonderful saying when we consider the men to whom it was addressed. It was addressed to 11 disciples who three days before had, had shamefully forsaken their master and fled. They'd broken their promises. They had forgotten their professions of readiness to die for their faith. They'd been scattered, every man to his own, and left their master to die alone. One of them had even denied him three times. All of them had proved backsliders and cowards. And yet, behold, the return which their master makes to his disciples. Not a word of rebuke is spoken. Not a single sharp saying falls from his lips. Calmly and quietly, he appears in the midst of them and begins by speaking of peace. Peace be unto you. What a day. I mean, have y'all ever had a day where you get to the end and literally the only thing that can come off maybe your lips or even just in your mind is, Lord, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness as you crash into bed emotionally, spiritually, physically exhausted. I'm sure you've had at least one day like that in your life. What a day for these disciples. They woke up and what was, what was most likely their first thought? Jesus is dead. And then they begin to hear rumors. No, the, the tomb is empty. And then others come and say, well, no, not only is the tomb empty, but, but we've seen Jesus. He's risen. And then, the end of the day, in their very midst as they're trying to, to talk about these things and, and comprehend what's going on, he's there. I mean, talk about a, a roller coaster. Talk about a swing. To go from bitter to despair that, that the Christ is dead to, to then be in his very presence. He's there. And Jesus, being there in the passage we see, he understands what's going on with his disciples. He understands they're frightened. He understands they're troubled. He understands that they're even doubting. 
as it's recorded, that they, they see Christ and yet they think perhaps it's just a spirit. And Jesus shows great love and patience to his disciples as he explains the peace that he brings as he proclaims it. So there's a few things that are happening that we shouldn't miss. I mean, they are thinking, they're doubting, they're, they're troubled in their, their very hearts and minds to the extent that Christ knows that they, they think that perhaps he's a, a spirit or a ghost. And, and so he says, no, 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 look, look at, look at my wounds that are healed, these scars, my, my flesh and blood. Do you have something to eat? He's showing them. No, I'm not just some phantom. I am the risen Christ here before you. As we'll get into in a few moments, just as all of my word has proclaimed what happened. I have been preparing you and the people for. He does this, but also he goes in great love and patience to tenderly explain to them this peace that he brings. Now, we don't want to miss this thing. We move forward to Revelation chapter 19, and we have a very clear description of our Savior leading the armies of heaven. As it said, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, saying that he is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. We see in Revelation the truth and the reality of what is coming at the return of Christ as he judges the world. The mighty King of kings, Lord of lords, ruler over all things. We don't see a picture of a, of a weak Jesus. We don't see a picture in the scriptures of an effeminate wuss Jesus. Even in his earthly ministry, we saw in the beginning of this week, as he came into Jerusalem, what was it that he did? He went to the temple and he cleansed it. He emptied it of all of the the perversion of the worship that was going on, the things that had been, been done by men seeking to profit and to push out the true worship. He cleansed his father's house, the temple, with righteous anger. We saw throughout Luke, and you see it in the other gospel accounts, as, as Christ encounters the religious self-righteous, he does not cower from them, but he brings the truth to bear. And with his words, he cuts them to the heart as he calls them to repentance and to faith. This is not a coward. This is not a weak man. Yet we don't want to make the mistake either that he's a cruel tyrant. But what we see, we see what, what real power is. We see our Savior who loves his people with a love beyond our comprehension. We see him fulfilling, again, a messianic prophecy from Isaiah that explains to us, shows us, helps us, reveals to us a little bit of the demeanor of who Christ is. We turn to Isaiah 42 and Verses 1 through 4, we, we see this. 
Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands. Wait for his law. What we see on display here is is Jesus, his great love and patience for the spiritually weak, the disheartened, the fearful, those who are brokenhearted, in great need of comfort. You can imagine at this moment the wavering of even the faith of these disciples. And like the bruised reed and faint wick, the disciples are, are safe in the hands of Christ. Christ does not come in and extinguish the, the barely burning wick of faith that these men have as they're holding on and terrified. They're already bruised. He does not come and break them. But instead, we see our Savior treat his disciples the same way he treats you, dear saint. As he cares with his infinite love for his people. As we can go to him knowing he will not crush us. But he will care for us. Tending to our needs. For he is the good shepherd. Jesus brings this message of peace to his disciples. Now this isn't just a greeting. He didn't appear in the room amongst them. And it isn't just hello. Hello. It's great to see you guys. This isn't just the first century version of that. This isn't a a Jewish version of, hey, y'all. He is declaring to them that he has accomplished the redemption of his people. He is declaring to them real, permanent peace. Peace with God. It is theirs. It is done It is no longer something looking forward to, hoping and trusting will happen, that the Messiah will accomplish. He has done it. And he comes proclaiming it to him. Peace, peace to you. As he calms them in the midst of their their frightened and terrified state, as their, their troubled in heart, their doubts are arising Our dear Savior speaks peace to these disciples. A peace that all who ask God to forgive their sins and by the power of the Spirit trust in Jesus are given for salvation. A peace with God that is available. We see this peace and we also, as we move through this passage, we see a mission, the the risen Christ appeared to his disciples to give them a mission. So he's pro- proclaimed this peace to them. He, he's come and he's interacted with them. And, and now he, he gives them a mission. Jesus teaches his disciples everything the Old Testament scriptures say about him and, and foretold. Have you all ever seen a, a master class? Now it's... 
just something where, like, if you wanted to learn how to play guitar, you, you, you get this master class, and it's taught by a famous musician. It takes you from, like, strum to playing great songs. Or perhaps you want to learn how to write a novel. So there, there's a successful author who puts together this video series. You watch it, and it teaches you how to start from you know, putting words together to a sentence to creating your story and telling it and, and wrapping it all together. And they got these master classes for all kinds of things, cooking. Now perhaps, perhaps you're someone who uh, you think of cooking and you're like, yes, I love all those apps. I, I tap a few buttons and food shows up. It's wonderful. Well, you take a master class and, and you can have a, a famous chef teach you from the very beginning to putting a meal together. Well, one can only imagine what we see here, the master giving his master class in theology to his disciples. We see pictures of him here and there. Acts talks about these, these several days. They are together between now and the ascension that we'll look at next time we're together. But, but represented in these days that Christ spends with his disciples, he's, he's teaching them. He's opening their minds to the truth of the scriptures. He's revealing to them all, all of the Old Testament scriptures taught about, foretold, prophesied, explained who Christ is and what he would do when he comes and what he did. Just as the two disciples got a probably a mini version of that on the road when they were walking. We talked about that last time we were together. Imagine now Christ sits down and opens it up and takes it to the, to the next level as we read in verse 45, opening their minds to understand the scriptures, explaining to them, it's written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. These are things that he continued to teach and explain and, and to draw out from all of the scriptures, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Everything that had been said, what was going to happen, had to be fulfilled. It would be fulfilled because God had sovereignly said it would. That was the plan. That was God's mission. That was what Jesus was doing. Now that this redemption has been accomplished, now that he is there, he is teaching. Them. Because now the mission is to go to all the world and preach this repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. And he commands them to start in Jerusalem. As you're reading the Bible and listening to the Bible and spending time in prayer with the Lord, we hopefully are praying, we should be praying for each other and for ourselves that we would also have the Lord opening our minds to understand the scriptures. Sadly, there are people who, who probably know more technically about the Bible than everyone here, all of us. And yet they know all these things and it is just a, a field of study. It's just an interest. But yet they read it with a heart of stone. They have not been given a new life. The, the Spirit has not opened their mind to the great truth. 
so that when they read God's word and they spend time in prayer, they're fellowshipping with their Savior. And sadly, there's even some of us who perhaps have gone a long time sipping on milk because we haven't asked the Lord to open our minds and pursued it to better understand his, his word and to see the, the flow of redemptive history, his covenant thesis, what it is he's doing, what has been promised, what has been fulfilled, what is coming. But these are things that we can ask for and should, on a regular basis, pray that the Lord would do this. This mission that the disciples are given, the command that they're given, as one pastor explains this, this mission that, that Jesus gives and that we see working through the church, we read that the repentance and remission of sins were to be preached in his name among all nations. Repentance and remissions of sins are, are the first things which ought to be pressed on the attention of every man, woman, and child throughout the world. All ought to be told of the necessity of repentance. All are by nature desperately wicked. Without repentance and conversion, none can enter the kingdom of God. All ought to be told God's readiness to forgive everyone who believes on Christ. All are by nature guilty and condemned. But anyone may obtain by faith in Jesus free, full, and immediate pardon. All, not least, ought to be continually reminded that repentance and remission of sins are inseparably linked together. Not that our repentance can purchase our pardon. Pardon is the free gift of God to the believer in Christ. But still it remains true that a man impenitent is a man unforgiven. So we have the mission. Go preach repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Christ. And there's a command with it. Jesus tells them, stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave yet until the promise, the promise of my father comes upon you, which we see in Acts 2 and Pentecost as the the Spirit comes and fills the church and we see the new covenant church and age begin. God's love for saving sinners and his sovereign power is on display with the disciples being told to stay in Jerusalem, I think. They're told first, stay in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where you're going to start this preaching. The very city the very city where Christ was crucified. Amongst the very people, religious leaders, civil leaders, who had twisted and perverted and manipulated, humanly speaking, to get Christ to the cross. Amongst the people whose, whose hearts were hardened as they cried out for a murderer, a rebel, to be released over their Messiah. It is in that city that they are sent. The city that still has a leadership that wants to crush this movement. Those who would preach salvation in the name of Christ. It's in that city that God says, first, you will preach the gospel. And we see in Acts 
how mightily the Spirit uses the preaching of the gospel amongst the people in Jerusalem. Thousands are saved by the work of the Spirit through the bold preaching of the apostles. And they are told to stay there. Yes, they will go. Yes, that is the mission. They're going to take the gospel to all the world, to all the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations. But they are to start in Jerusalem. For there are many that God has appointed, many that, as you read through Acts, had even participated in, supported the death of Christ. The Spirit would give them hearts new, living, crying out to the very Savior that just just months or weeks or days before they had hated now and love and serve. His power is on display. His love to save sinners is on display. And we see in the Synoptic Gospels, filling out this mission a little bit, it's preach the gospel to the world, baptize those whom the Spirit saves, bring them to the church, they might be equipped as disciples. And then repeat, repeat, repeat. Disciples who are equipped are then salt and light. The Spirit uses them to transform the world driven by the bold gospel preaching of the church taking this message of repentance and faith in Christ, witnessing the Lord Jesus Christ to every person who breathes. By God's grace, may we always keep this mission the mission, and may we do this mission and continue to. May the Lord bless it. The risen Christ appeared to his disciples to give them peace, charge them with a mission. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace, and we ask that you would Allow us to continue to enjoy the peace that our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, has has earned for his people. Peace with you. Lord, we're thankful that our sins have been taken and and cast as far as the east is from the, the west. And that because of Christ, we've been forgiven. Lord, we're thankful that you have granted to your church the glorious mission to share the gospel with all. Lord, use us. Use us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.